Hello, this is Rachel Babin from oncologynews.com.au, proud producers of the Oncology Podcast. In today's episode, Eva Segloff gets us started with a great analysis of a paper on fertility preservation. Hans Prennan from Belgium chats to us about identifying hereditary colorectal cancer syndromes. And Craig Underhill chats to Professor Fran Boyle on burnout, an important topic for everyone working in cancer care. We also have quick bites and a few laughs, so we hope you enjoy another entertaining and informative episode. As ever, links to all of the papers discussed today are available in the notes. For the latest oncology news and podcast updates, subscribe to the Oncology Newsletter. You'll see a link on oncologynews.com.au. Thank you. This is Rachel Babin, and this is the Oncology Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Oncology Journal Club. Hard to believe that there are nine previous fantastic podcasts. So if you're only tuning in for the first time, go back and look at our previous podcasts. Actually, you better listen to them. There's not much to look at, which is very lucky because you don't have to see my co-host. Hello, Hans. Hi, Eva. How are you doing? Very good, Hans, but I'm not on holiday like you. Actually, today, as we're recording, it's the national holiday of Belgium, yes. And hello, Craig Underhill, recent media star as he lives in Wodonga and works in Albury. Tomorrow he's waiting two hours to cross the border. Hi, Eva. How are you going, Hans Bonfait? Hi, how are you doing? Yeah, indeed. All right, let's move on. Okay, so Eva, I have a question to start with. So I noticed okay. that I noticed that you selected a paper to present about 2018. Why is that? Well, Hans, I selected it because the senior author comes from Belgium. And I'm not sure why you're not interviewing him. But seriously, it's an interesting topic and one that's well worth revising. So this is a paper published in JCO 2018 entitled Gonadotropin-Releasing Hormone Agonists During Chemotherapy for Preservation of Ovarian Function and Fertility in Premenopausal Patients with Early Breast Cancer, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis of Individual Patient-Level Data. So this gives us a chance to talk about meta-analyses and the use of individual patient-level data versus abstracted data. And this is a very important survivorship issue. So we know that the use of anti-cancer treatment in premenopausal women can cause toxicity to the gonads. And that's very much dependent on both age and the type of chemotherapy agent and also the impact of subsequent adjuvant endocrine therapy for early breast cancer. We know that chemotherapy-induced premature ovarian insufficiency, POI, can have a very negative impact on quality of life. Not only are there menopausal symptoms and sexual dysfunction, but also the impact on fertility. And international guidelines recommend to counsel all young patients about this. And at the moment, we can preserve embryos and also oocytes for fertility, which is a concern of up to 50% of young patients with early breast cancer who express a desire for at least the potential to have children after treatment. There's also the impact of long-term premature menopause uh, on bone density, cardiac health, and many other features. 
And really the only strategy that's been uh, of any benefit potentially to reduce this is the use of GnRH analogs. Now, up till this time of this report, there had been a number of randomised trials to look at this precise issue, but they had conflicting results. And even to this date in 2018, ESMO and ASCO guidelines recommended GnRH analogues as an experimental technique. So this group had previously published a meta-analysis using abstracted data, and what they showed was the use of GnRH analogues was significantly associated with a reduced risk of chemotherapy-induced POI and amenorrhea at one year following chemotherapy completion. But they couldn't draw any final conclusions because the data really stopped at one year and also there was a large study that hadn't yet reported. So the group re-looked at this issue. They used a standard systematic review and meta-analysis technique called PRISMA and they lodged their protocol on the PROSPERO database. So if you're doing a systematic review and meta-analysis, there are a number of databases that you can register with, and it's well worth being familiar with the protocol for systematic reviews and meta-analyses. This paper looked at both efficacy of the drug in preserving both ovarian function and fertility, and also the safety, in other words, the toxicity, and whether it had any adverse impact on survival as had been raised previously, that there may be some antagonism with chemotherapy for ER-positive disease. And they looked at amenorrhea at both 12 and 24 months. So the authors did a literature search that came up with 14 publications concerning 13 randomised control trials, all in patients with early breast cancer. Of course, you have other patients, predominantly lymphoma, Hodgkin's that are also in this uh, circumstance of, of having chemotherapy as a young adult. But this was only breast cancer. These were trials where the patients got either chemotherapy adjuvantly or neoadjuvantly and were randomised to have the GnRH analogue or not. Now, they were only able to get individual patient data out of five of these trials, and that equated to 873 premenopausal women. And the paper explains there was a number of authors who refused to give individual patient data and also publication groups could not be contacted. So, in fact, uh, this group represents 55% of patients in which this condition was studied. So I think that's a bit of an indictment on people not wanting to share data and also five groups where uh, there was no response to any attempts, it says, for multiple contact to get data. Basically, the two groups had very similar baseline characteristics with a median age at diagnosis of 38 years, about 40% were ER positive. All the trials had the primary endpoint being chemotherapy-induced premature ovarian insufficiency. And the bottom line is that occurred in about 14.1% of people who got the GnRH analogues versus about 30.9% in the control-adjusted group. Odds ratio of 0.38, 95% confidence intervals from 0.26 to 0.57 highly statistically significant. 
In the meta-analysis, there was no heterogeneity with an I squared of 0%. That tells us the trials were very, very similar in what they were measuring and their patient population. They did a multivariate analysis and there were only two factors that lowered your risk of premature ovarian insufficiency. That was the use of the GNRH analogue and also a younger age. Now, very interestingly, they found a finding that differed from their abstract-derived meta-analysis, which had more trials in it, but previously they'd shown a reduction in one-year amenorrheic rates. But here they found really no statistically significant difference in the one-year rate. The real difference was in two-year rates, and that makes sense because if you're going to recover your ovarian function it usually takes some time. And they also found that 10% of patients in the GNRH analog group versus 5% in the control group went on to have a successful pregnancy. All of these patients were under 40 years of diagnosis. The majority had estrogen receptor negative disease, but about 15% were ER positive. In terms of side effects, the expected side effects of hot flushes and sweating were worse when the GNRH was given with chemo, but there was no significant difference in mood changes, vaginal dryness or headache. And interestingly, in terms of five-year disease-free survival, the figures were identical. Uh, There was no interaction with the estrogen receptor status. And in five-year overall survival, it was 90.2% in the GNRH analog group versus 86.3% in the placebo, which was not statistically significant. So the limitation is that there's a whole lot of data out there from studies that they couldn't get, but the strength is that they used individual patient data rather than just abstracted data. They point out that patients are now getting hyperstimulation for oocyte collection, for cryopreservation of oocytes and the use of GNRH analogs. The timing of the use after that hyperstimulation is not known and potentially uh, there could be issues. And nowadays we have more sophisticated measurements of ovarian function like anti-malarian hormone that would be useful. But this should be standard practice now for young women with early breast cancer. And I think the PBS update from a few years ago was that this, in fact, is now funded for this indication. So that's my paper from Belgium. It was a very extensive summary of the paper, but I think it's a very important topic, although it's from 2018. Actually, it was so clear that I have no further questions. Craig, do you have a question? I have one question, Eva. So do you think now this uh, question is closed? Do we now have the answers that can help us decide on how to treat patients? Do we really need more research into this or is it now done? I don't think we need any more randomised controlled clinical trials, but I do think to get the data from those other trials would be really, really useful. And there is an obligation, an ethical obligation, I think, Uh, on behalf of the patients who participated to provide the data. So I'd really like to see that data included. But I think as far as the data we have, this is definitive and we don't need to do any more prospective trials. Great. 
So now I'm handing over to you, Hans, who's been on holidays, dear listeners, and we haven't seen hide nor hair of him for some time. Hans, you are going to talk to us about the changing approach for identifying hereditary colorectal cancer syndromes, a publication in Nature Review Gastroenterology and Hepatology in 2020. Yes, Eva. So I was reading a paper in Nature Reviews. I think it's a very interesting one because it's something that I also think of in my daily clinics. As you mentioned, it's called the Changing Approach of Identifying Hereditary Colorectal Cancer Syndromes. It's a commentary by Luigi Laggi. It's an, uh, a researcher from Parma. He wants to say something about the hereditary colorectal cancer syndrome. So up to now, investigations for high penetrance mutations, they were mainly triggered by rare phenotypes, such as, for example, in FAP, or by family history, so as is, for example, in HNPCC. And as you know, we also screen for MSI now because it has also clinical implications. And we want to detect patients with mutations in their mismatch repair genes. The problem is, as you all know, is that some patients have an atypical clinical phenotype of hereditary colorectal cancer and are therefore missed based on current guidelines for diagnosis. So I always ask my patients for the family history, but often they don't know if somebody in their family has colon cancer or they have no contact with them or they don't want to say. So I think just screening by family history, by MSI, is not enough. We also see more and more patients, very young patients these times, with uh, colorectal cancer with no clear uh, mutation found in the mutations that we already know that are predisposing to colon cancer. Now it is believed that approximately 10% of colorectal cancer cases are due to inherited genetic defects. So it is quite a lot. It's one out of 10 patients. And it's actually thanks to the NGS panels that we do now that we find a much higher fraction of germline pathogenic variants, such as, for example, BRCA1, BRCA2, ATM, and many more. However, there is still a debate about the clinical meaning of mutations in low penetrance genes, for example, heterozygous, NYH. So we still need much more large-scale data to clear these things out. And actually what the authors want to highlight in this commentary is that they will start in Italy a national program to do NGS analysis in patients with early-onset colorectal cancer. And the entry level for sequencing will be the age of onset, irrespective of the family history. And the project will enroll 1,000 patients, and the panel will identify both germline and somatic mutations, as well as high-risk variants caused by SNPs. So to conclude, I hope that one day I will be able to write in the files of my patients, in every patient, which mutations there are, if there are germline, somatic, even variants that may cause a high risk of colorectal cancer relapse. Hans, that's a great paper to review, so important. My question is, what was the age cutoff they were using? It's a very good question. It's not specifically mentioned in the paper, but they usually suggest below the age of 50, because as you know, above the age of 50, your chances for colorectal cancer are increasing. 
But we see the last year, so last decade, we see an increase in young patients below 50 with the diagnosis of colon cancer. And Hans, I wanted to ask, what are the main things that you would take away from this paper that will change what you do in the clinic today? When you're not on holidays. (laughs) Okay, so when I'm not on holiday, what I try to do, I also tell my trainees, is that they always have to ask for family history. So this is something that has to be in their files, so family history, also the mutational status, the base like RAS and BRAF. But I think what we learn from this paper is that Besides, so independent of the family history, it's very important to be aware that there can also be a genetic predisposition. And this is based on the findings in a full NGS. Of course, the problem is my dream is to do a full NGS in any patient with cancer, but you still have the matter of cost. But I hope that they will also be able to show in this Italian study that this strategy in young patients below 50 will all be also be cost-efficient on long term. Well, that's pretty good, but you'll have a lot of results to look at and you already work pretty long hours, Hans, so I'm really worried you might burn out. I try to work as efficient as possible so then you avoid burnout. So that's an important topic, how to avoid burnout. In fact, it's one that the Oncology Journal Club should cover. So I might flick over to our roving reporter, Dr. Craig Underhill, who is going to do a guest interview with Professor Fran Boyle on this precise topic and some recent papers in the literature that are important for us all to know about. So it's a great pleasure to welcome friend, colleague Fran Boyle, Professor Fran Boyle, who's a medical oncologist at North Sydney's Mater Hospital, also director of the Patricia Ritchie Centre for Cancer Care and Research and the Pam McLean Centre in Sydney Medical School. Fran has a particular interest in burnout and its relationship to empathy, teamwork, communication. So we thought that burnout would be a topical subject for the podcast in this crazy COVID time. So Welcome, Fran. I think the last time uh, we saw each other may have been wearing Qantas pyjamas on a flight to Chicago. I think that probably those are now going to pass into history, Craig, as uh, something very special to keep aside because it may be that the days of Qantas pyjamas are over. End of an era. So again, welcome. And let's have a look at these papers and people can click on the links if they want more information on these papers, but we're going to talk about a paper uh, in the JAMA network, Resilience and Burnout Among Physicians and the General U.S. Working Population. This is a cross-sectional national survey and a probability-based sample. Yes, Craig. So this paper set out to compare uh, U.S. physicians, and by that they meant a whole variety of doctors, essentially. So what we would call physicians was just one subset of them, with people of similar age in the working population in the US in terms of two factors. So they used the MAS-like burnout measure, which we'll talk about a bit later perhaps as being well used but probably out of date uh, in measuring burnout, and also a measure of resilience uh, that asks two basic questions. One is about what your ability is to bounce back when you have setbacks and the other is about what 
ability, you have to manage change or react positively to change. So quite simple questions, really. And what they found uh, was that overall, doctors were more resilient than the average working population by a little bit. And that's probably not surprising when you think about what you have to do to survive to work as a doctor. But also, they found that as resilience increased on those measurements, burnout reduced. So the people with low levels of resilience were more likely to be burnt out. Now, again, that's probably not surprising. But what was interesting was that even amongst the people with the highest levels of resilience, so as high as you could go, their burnout level was still 30%. And that's obviously unacceptably high when you think about the impact that burnout has on patient care, as well as health professionals and their lives and and family lives. So there's only a certain extent to which being more resilient can protect you against burnout, which is interesting because there's long been a debate about whether the way to address this problem is to work on the individual and their own susceptibility and try and strengthen them, or whether the issue is more about the system in which people work. And the accompanying editorial, I think, comes pretty clearly down uh, on the side of saying, well, if we put people in systems that are not very functional, it doesn't matter how resilient they are, they're going to get driven crazy by it. I think that there's always a tendency, isn't there, to blame the individual when they have burnouts, like it's, there's a problem with them. But this editorial very clearly says we need to work on the systems and we'll talk about some of the specific issues in a minute. But one of the things that I picked up, I was really surprised at the rate of burnout, which was, you know, around the 30% mark. Did that surprise you? Do we have data in Australia with a similar level? We do have Australian data from work that we did um, more than a decade ago with a similar measure and that Afagurgis has also done with COSA members, suggesting that around 30% would not be surprising in the oncology workforce. And that's judged on either emotional exhaustion or depersonalisation being above the sort of cutoff level. And uh, so, in a way, not surprising. And it would be, in fact, interesting to know whether during the COVID time things have actually got worse because some of the factors about the system uh, have become, particularly in the US probably, even more concerning in the sense in which people don't feel safe at work and don't feel that their backs are covered by administration to the highest level in the land. Yeah, that's right. So it may well be that 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 30% is in fact an underestimate now. Now, what's interesting about um, the MASLAC burnout inventory is that it actually looks at really quite a small number of features And there's some really nice work recently in Australia from the Black Dog Institute, Gordon Parker's group, looking at broader definitions and a new tool for measuring burnout, which we're looking forward to getting our hands on. And that does identify that as well as uh, the classic things that are described, anxiety is really quite a very common accompaniment, uh, almost usual accompaniment, not so much depression, but anxiety. And also the underlying personality trait of perfectionism. Now, I don't know about you, but I could confess to being an anxious overachiever myself. And I think if you looked around the oncology world, the people that we hold up as being successful in our world are probably all anxious overachievers. And 
if that is accepted as being the norm of what you need to do to be successful in your work in the oncology setting, then there's going to be a lot of unhappy people around because that expectation uh, is not sustainable. And I think therefore individual susceptibility is something that we have to consider when we think about what is it we're aiming for with a good resilient workforce. Are we aiming for everybody to be absolutely empathic, absolutely engaged, absolutely excellent, firing on all cylinders 60 hours a week? Or is that actually just a completely unrealistic expectation and we need to be thinking about something more moderate that allows us to feel satisfied that we've done a good day's work? Yeah. And so in this editorial, what were some of the main issues identified within the system that we should work on to try and minimise burnout? I mean, some of it was US-related around payment system, but not really because, again, in in Australia, in some ways, we have a similar fee-for-service system that encourages people to work really hard to earn more money. That's true. And that a lot of the work which is cognitively challenging there's recent work in the neuroscience world that talks about empathy being cognitively challenging to really put yourself in someone else's shoes to really listen to really understand where they're coming from that takes a big amount of brain space but that kind of work office consultation work is actually not rewarded in the same way as the work you would do if someone was anesthetized and you didn't have to be empathic at all and so the stuff that chews up all of that brain space is the stuff that's less remunerated in the US system and in ours. They also talk about the electronic medical record. And I say with some shame that our practice were all turned into alcoholics by the implementation of Mosaic because the extra two hours work a day that was unpaid and in cocktail hour when we should have been home having dinner with our families was instead spent in the office now we're, we're over the, we're on dry July, we're over the hump now, you'll be pleased to hear. But when new systems are implemented in healthcare, rarely do administration take account of the burden on doctors and nurses that will be required to change the way they do things, that change management. And nearly always, there are inefficiencies that make life more difficult. They may get better in the end, but there's no doubt that that extra stress took a toll on all of us. Yeah. So it's not EMR in itself that's a problem. It's the really the change to EMR, new systems in general. Yeah. It's the change. So whatever that system is, and, you know, somebody will be paid to run the software, but we won't be generally compensated for the time that we spend learning and checking and redoing systems. And so one of the interesting things to see coming out of COVID will be whether the the great leap forward of electronic communication actually gives us some relief uh, as we learn to use electronic systems better for telehealth and so forth, or whether, in fact, it will add yet another new system that ties us out. So there's already some evidence emerging of um, Zoom fatigue and that trying to pick up the nuances of interpersonal communication over video are quite different from how they are in a live interview with a patient. So it's already cognitively challenging work. And then you add video and technological issues on top of that. So last year's mosaic has probably become this year's Zoom or Pexip or whatever system you're using. What choice did we have? People just are 
perfectionists and they throw themselves into it and they try and adapt. So we're going to wrap up this section now, but we're going to expand on some of the solutions for burnout in a special edition of the Oncology Podcast. And we're going to flesh out some practical tips on how to manage burnout in the Zoom COVID era. It has been a difficult year for people. We had in our own region and some other regions of Southeast Australia and Western Australia, we've had the fires, we've had floods, we've had EMR, we've had Zoom and COVID. So it's really been a year of adaptation and expectations of resilience from medical staff and others this year. So it's been an interesting year, but let's be careful what we wish for because I think it's not all over yet. So, And I think, Craig, the key thing for the take-home message is you know, we need to get to the end of each day and say, I've done enough. You know, I haven't done everything I could have done. I maybe haven't done everything to 120% like I might once have, but I've done enough and I've been appreciated and I can now take some time off and look after myself. And none of us are going to be able to sustain 120%. Yeah. And I think that, that was another issue in that editorial was appreciation. So people receiving some recognition for what they've done for sharing that recognition, saying thank you, actually was a measure that could uh, reduce the rate of burnout. Absolutely. So fantastic. Thank you. It's now back to Eva for the rest of this edition of the Oncology Journal Club podcast. Thanks, Craig. So I selected this week actually three publications. They're very recent, so not from 2018, but from July 2020. And the first paper I selected is actually the ESCO guideline on prevention and management of chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy in survivors of adult cancers. It's published in GCO. It's actually a full-text review of 87 manuscripts, and they concluded that there are no agents that are recommended for the prevention of chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy. So they tell us that there is more focus on those reductions or stopping changing chemotherapeutic drugs that cause neuropathy. For the treatment of polyneuropathy, only duloxetine is the only drug with evidence to support its use there. Nevertheless, the amount of benefit from duloxetine is very limited. The second paper I looked at is a paper about cabozantinib in patients with platinum refractory metastatic urothelial carcinoma. It's an open-label phase 2 trial published by Apollo et al. in Lancet Oncology. It only includes 68 patients, but there was one complete response and seven partial responses. So in conclusion, cabozantinib has single-agent activity in platinum refractory metastatic urothelial cancer. The third and last paper I want to present to you as a short bite is the differential benefit of adjuvant docetaxel-based chemo in patients with early breast cancer according to baseline body mass index. And this is a very important one. It's published in GCO by the Belgian Christine de Smet. And the idea is the following. So lipophilic drugs such as taxanes, they have a high affinity of adipose tissue and resulting higher volume of distribution. So what they did is they analyzed data from an adjuvant breast cancer trial comparing non-docetaxel to docetaxel chemotherapy, and they found a differential response to docetaxel according to BMI. 
So there is a reduced DFS and overall survival with increasing BMI. Of course, I want to highlight that these results must be confirmed in additional series, but I think it's a very interesting finding. And these were my short buys for this week. That was pretty snappy, I reckon, Craig. What do you think? Craig's nodding for those who are watching this <laughs> podcast. So now we're going to the final segment, PBS Update. In fact, Eva, it's kind of a new segment because we've got Access Program Update. So recently, as a result of Nivolumab going onto the PBS for adjuvant treatment of melanoma in response one of the competing companies has released just this week an access program for pembrolizumab in the adjuvant setting. So interesting, they've also applied for PBS listing. And in the meantime, there's a free access program available. Fantastic. We need to get all these drugs on as soon as we can. But of course, there's the issue of cost and cost effectiveness. And of course, we need to use the ESMO magnitude of clinical benefit or the ASCO value framework. See our previous oncology podcast episode if you don't know what we're talking about. So that brings us to the end of another fantastic OJC. Keep well, keep safe, keep listening and click on the links, Craig. And thanks, of course, to Rachel Babin, our wonderful producer at Oncology News Australia. Follow me on Twitter, but not Craig or Ham, <laughs> and follow Oncology News Oz. Bye for now. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Oncology Podcast. If you enjoyed today's edition and would like to subscribe, head over to our website, oncologynews.com.au, and sign up to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.